Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us the scriptures that bring us hope and bring us life and that build our faith. We pray, open our understanding today to learn your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him we're about to connect the dots. Amen. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were here going through this, um, uh, I hate to call it a survey of the Old Testament, that sounds too technical, but an overview of the Old Testament where we're connecting the dots so that you can understand the Old Testament because to understand the Old Testament is to understand the New Testament, okay? So, the Pentateuch comes alive is what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to get through Exodus and then we're going to sort of... Uh, pick up our pace after Exodus next week. But these first two books are really, really important. So let's, let's talk about the story of God's people first. You remember last time we were talking about the story of God's people, that the Old Testament is the story of God working out his plan of redemption and raising up his people for a purpose, that from them would come Messiah, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You remember that? So the story of God's people is in the first 17 books of the Bible. Genesis to Esther. And it's divided into two major categories. And the first of all, there is the law or the Pentateuch. Everybody say with me, the Pentateuch. Don't you feel intelligent when you say that? That's a neat word, Pentateuch. Now, the Pentateuch basically means five books of the law. So the Pentateuch is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, first five. Then you have the history, which is Joshua through Esther. The essential makeup of these books is narrative. It's telling a story. It's like you've opened up a novel and you're reading a story of God's plan being worked out throughout the ages. Now, uh, this means the story of God's people, Israel, is being told starting in Genesis 12 with the introduction of Abraham. Now, remember, Israel was born when God interacted with Jacob and said to Jacob, I'm going to change your name from cheater or con artist to Israel. And I'm going to call you Israel, which means, you know, uh, way better than Jacob, the trickster. Amen? God's peace, God's blessing. This was further fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. They are referred to as the people of God, the, the people of Israel. God is the Holy One of Israel. That's why when our nation decides to not bless Israel, you need to get concerned. You catch that? Because right now our nation is not blessing Israel. We are siding inexplicably with Israel's enemies. And Bible says, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Very, very important thing, what you do with Israel. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, not the, uh, not the annihilation of Jerusalem. 
Now, the Old Testament is a historical narrative. It's not a work of fiction. It's not Brothers Grimm. It's not a fable. It's not metaphors to teach us spiritual truth. It's real history. Amen? Okay. Books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy are part of that history. And when you get into them, uh, they, they may seem boring and they may seem irrelevant, but they are not stuck in there as an add-on. They are part of a genuine story. So let's begin at the beginning. What is the beginning? Genesis. Moses is the author of the five books of the law. Throughout the books of the law, we see Moses constantly receiving directives from the Lord. He's taken up into that mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and God appears to him. He comes down from that mountain with his face glowing in the dark. They had to put a, a veil over his face because they couldn't stand looking at the Shekinah glory that was emanating from him like a Christmas bulb. He, he glowed in the dark. Okay? Throughout the books of the law, we see Moses receiving these directives. Now, catch this. The Lord Jesus, Paul, and John all attributed the writing of these books to Moses. Now, let's just start with Jesus. If Jesus said Moses wrote it and that it was the Word of God, that's good enough for me. All right? If Jesus said there was a Jonah and there was a whale, there was Sodom and Gomorrah and there was a fierce, fiery judgment, if Jesus validated it, then that's all we need. Okay? Moses wrote most of the books, but the likelihood is that he did have a little bit of help, especially uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy, where he's writing about his own death. And how in the world do you write about your own death ahead of time unless God showed it to you? So either somebody like Joshua filled in a little bit about Moses' death, or God gave Moses a prophetic insight into how he would die and where the Lord would bury him. Okay? Either way, I'm good with it. Moses is the primary writer of the Pentateuch. For example, when you get to the end of the books of the law, as I just said, Moses passes away. And uh, so I, I can believe that since Jesus told us about his upcoming death, the same spirit of prophecy could come upon Moses and show him his upcoming death. And he could write about it before the fact. I have no problem with that. Y'all are quiet here tonight. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want God telling me when I'm going to die and where and how, and I don't want to write about it, that's for sure. Lord, surprise me. <laughs> the first book, Genesis, literally means what, everybody? Say it with me. Beginning. It's the beginning. I want you to know there was a beginning to this world. There was a beginning. And, of course, the whole book opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis has two contexts, and here they are. The context of before the fall, which is the beginning of creation, and after the fall, which is the beginning of God's plan to redeem his creation. Huge. Genesis tells us about this pristine existence Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It was, if we could see it the way it was, it would blow our minds. But then came the fall. Now, 
God's plan to redeem. Let's talk about the word redeem just for a moment. It's a powerful word. And it basically means to restore his creation, to bring it back from what happened after the fall. That's God's plan of redemption. I don't think we realize how much was lost in the fall. If we could see what God sees and understand the way God sees it, it would break our hearts what was lost after that fall. But praise God, God intends to restore it. And the day will come when the lion will lay down with the lamb. The day will come when they'll beat their swords into plowshares and there'll be war no more. No more bloodshed, no more pain, no more sorrow. That day's coming. God's going to fully redeem what was lost. Paradise lost, paradise regained. Now, here's a little bit of practical advice for reading Genesis. We need to realize that just like a good novel that you might read, the introduction to the story of that novel is huge. If you don't read the first couple of chapters, that novel is nonsense to you. You don't understand what's going on. If you don't get a grasp of the introduction, the rest of it's going to make no sense. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are foundational to the rest of the Bible. Now, Watch this carefully. Genesis 1 to 11, there's four epical events. And what I mean by epical, E-P-O-C-H-A-L, epical or epics, means that there were four events in Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 that after which the world was never the same. It was an epical, defining moment, evermore event in the history of earth. Of course, there was the creation. That's the first one. Second epical event was the fall of Adam and Eve, and we fell with them. And I'm going to show you the verse in just a moment. The third was the flood. And let me tell you, dear church, there was a great flood that covered the entire earth. If you had been in a spaceship looking down, you would have seen a watery globe. That's it. No land masses at all. It went way above Everest. It went way above Ararat. The entire earth was covered in water. That's epical. I personally believe it carved out the Grand Canyon. I believe it's where most of the dinosaurs died out. It was epical. And evolutionary scientists are always trying to explain it away, but they can't. The evidence is too abundant. Of course, you can look right at it and say, it's not there. But I choose to be a realist and not a fantasy person. Okay? I'm not lost in fantasy. There was a great flood. And then finally, the Tower of Babel. Now, in the creation, God made all there is. In the fall, we lost all we had. In the flood, all that was there was wiped out. And in the Tower of Babel, where God confused the languages... All of humanity was scattered across the face of the earth. All, 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 with every one of those epical events. Read Genesis 1 through 11 slowly and carefully, because the things that unfold there are huge epical events. The major themes are, now here, here's, let's look at some major themes besides what I just shared with you that are in Genesis. First, the sovereignty of God. Can you say with me, sovereign? Now, what do you think when you, uh, when, you, when you hear the word sovereign? A sovereign king who says, do this, do that. This is the way it's going to be. And it is when you're in a monarchy, and we in America are not in one. 
Please tell me it's true. Okay. We're in a, we're in a democratic republic where the people have a vote, supposedly. Okay? But when you think of a sovereign, you think of a ruler, an ultimate ruler overall. Now, that's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means God has it. God is in control. Can we say that together? God is in control. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, he's in control of you. <clears throat> now, turn to the other side and say, he's in control of yours. God's in charge. Isn't that good news? Our God is in charge. Now, we see that from the beginning of all creation works according to his plan, his desires and his power. He has all authority over all creation. All throughout the book of Genesis, we see people wrestling and struggling with this concept that God is in charge. Now, let me, let me clarify something. Saying he's sovereign does not mean he does everything. In other words, everything that happens on earth was not done by God because God cannot do evil. Neither tempteth he any man, James said. The concept of sovereignty is that God is in charge of the direction of the entire universe and its final outcome. It means the devil is a dog on a leash. He is not independent. It means man may do evil things, and God allows it. And I don't know why, but he does. But in the end, the will of the Lord is going to be done. I'm going to show you some verses that are so powerful. You know, Job wondered, is God really in control of all things that are happening to me? When the people of Israel are being destroyed by Babylon... They wonder if God is still in control. Is he really in control? All throughout Scripture, we see people wrestling with the sovereignty of God. Tell the truth. How many of you have ever wrestled with the idea of the sovereignty of God? How many of you have ever said, how would you let this happen? Come on. Where were you? Have you ever asked the question, God, are you in control of what's going on in my life? And if you are, I don't understand. How can this be explained? Why is that person being prospered and I'm falling apart and I'm seeking you and they're living a wicked life? Now that one will really get you. That one drove David crazy, almost. I, I, here I am seeking you every morning, praying to you, living right, living morally, and I'm struggling just to pay the bills and this guy over here is living like a devil and he's a millionaire. Let me tell you what. Time is the great arbiter. Time always really tells the story. And if you're saved, washed in the blood, you are richer than Donald Trump and Bill Gates and all the rest because they can't take that with them. Now, many of you are still wrestling with these questions. You're wrestling with the idea of sovereignty. How is God in control of these things happening? Why all the murder and pain and heartache and disease and famine and and craziness in this world of God's in charge. Let me show you that what the Bible says about this. The sovereignty of God is not an easy concept to grasp. It is not. I accept it by faith. But the Bible's crystal clear on it. Look at a few of these verses. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 12. Listen to this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power 
and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. And it goes on. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you, read these last three, wor- three words with me. You You know what that means in the Hebrew? He rules over all. That doesn't mean he rules over half or most or some or a percentage. He rules over all. Let's look at another one. He goes on. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now look at the psalmist writing in 115 verse 3. Read it with me, everybody. It's short. Our God is in the heavens. What does he do? He does all that he pleases. I heard somebody teaching this, this, well, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm amazed at what some people say when they're supposedly teaching the Bible. This person said, God can't do anything unless I say it. That's what he said. He said, God is hindered in my life And God's hands are tied. And if I told you the name of this person, you would all know them. God's hands are tied until I say the right confession, then God is free to move. I wanted to reach through that television and grab me by the scruff of the neck and say, hey, stop that foolishness. Because let me tell you what, the Bible says, my God does what he pleases. He's God. If he's dependent on what I say, we're all in trouble. (laughs) Job 42, verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's going to do what he wants. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from coming back. Nothing's going to stop the Lord from wrapping this all up. Nothing is going to stop God from throwing Satan into the burning, fiery pit one day. Nothing is going to stop us from being raptured up into the presence of the Lord one day. No matter what we say or don't say, we're still going up. You may say all day long, well, I'm not going up. You're going up too if you're saved. All the way up, you'll be saying, I'm not going up. But you're going up because the will of God is going to be done. Look what he says. Let's look at a few more. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can plan all day long, but God, if you're his child, is going to order your steps. Psalms 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And read this last part with me, everyone. His kingdom rules over all. Not the devil's kingdom. Not man's kingdom. Not Washington, D.C. His kingdom kingdom rules over all because he's sovereign now let's jump into the new testament this is one of my favorites this is so profound paul writes in him we have obtained an inheritance ephesians 1 11 and 12 in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him now read the last part with me who works all things according to the counsel of his will That couldn't be more clear. God works everything after the counsel of his will. He raises nations up, puts nations down. Raises people up, puts them down. 
He is in charge of his universe. And it goes on to say, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. God's in charge. God's got it. He has everything under control. So <clears throat> do you understand it? Maybe not. I don't fully understand it, but you know what? I fully believe it, and I know it to be true. Okay? As we come to understand God's sovereignty, we know that no matter what happens to any of us, there is a God who has a purpose, and God promises that no matter what we experience, he's going to make all things work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Okay? His purpose will be accomplished, for he is infinitely wise, he is infinitely good, he infinitely loves, he is infinitely gracious, and it all unfolds from the very beginning in Genesis. Read Genesis and you see who is in charge. Quick illustration. I've given this before. Let me help a couple of you because you're looking at me with a furrowed brow. It's like a cruise ship. Now, you take a cruise ship, and you've got a captain, and he's guiding that ship. And on that ship are, let's say, 800 people. 800 people on that ship, they do a lot of things that captain doesn't like. They do a lot of things that that captain's rules would be against. They drink, they get drunk, they, you know, they mess around, they, they break the law, and all kinds of things are happening on this ship that the captain is in charge of. But guess what? He keeps guiding the ship to its destination no matter what. And everyone on that ship is on the same ride. It's all going to come to the same destination. Now, you can get there and be on good terms with the captain, or you can get there and be in big trouble once he reaches the destination. But the bottom line is, no matter who's on it, the ship is headed to its final port. This world is a great big ship. People are breaking the law. People are living immorally. People are doing what they want to do. Some are honoring the captain. Most are not. But they're all headed to the same destination. The captain is finally going to pull into the final port. And there's going to be a trumpet blast. And the church is going to go up. And those that are alive and remain shall, shall meet those who have come out of the graves in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Then there's finally going to be a great white throne judgment where the great and the small are going to be brought before God and judged for the things they have done. That's the final destination. So no matter what goes on on the ship, and, and there are things the captain allows, he's still in charge, and he's still carrying the whole thing right where he wants it to go. He's sovereign. Now, the second theme in Genesis is the sinfulness of man. Genesis 3 is an incredible chapter. It shows beyond question the fall of Adam and Eve. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 12, that along with Adam, the whole world fell. And I say that a lot lately. You know why I say it a lot? Because so much deception has entered the church. There are churches that if you sat there for five years, you would never hear the word sin. You would never hear the word fallen. 
you would hear things like self-esteem, love yourself, God is in you, he's not mad, everything's okay, he wants you to enjoy your best life now. And we're listening to a gutted gospel. It's a gutted gospel. I'm sorry, but it is. Pastor Jeff, you shouldn't be so scrutinizing. I have to be scrutinizing. I'm a teacher of the word of God. I have to be. Now look at what the Bible says. When Adam sinned, this is Romans 5, 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to how many? Everyone for everyone did what? There you have it. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the third thing we find in Genesis is the promise of redemption. Now when you look at Genesis 3, verse 15, that is the John 3, 16 of Genesis. It's God's promise to destroy the tempter and restore the fallen world through the Messiah. No sooner had Adam and Eve sinned, God came to judge the devil, Adam, and Eve. And when he was speaking to the devil, here's what he said to the devil. Quote, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now catch the next, next part. He, capital H, the Messiah, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Is that not amazing? Because Jesus stretched out his hands and his feet and they ran the stakes through that heel. Way down the tunnel of time, God said, that's how the battle is going to end. You're going to have your heel pierced. He will, the Messiah. But he is going to deal a death blow to your head, devil. That's what he's saying. Powerful. So that's the John 3.16 of Genesis. Genesis 3.15. It's easy to remember. Now, then there's a plot in Genesis. And not only should we grasp the major themes but the major plot as well. The major plot is God's call of Abraham. Here's where the action really begins. Here's where Genesis 3.15 begins to be worked out in time and space with the call of Abraham. God's plan is now about to commence. So Genesis 12.1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. Abram's call is a picture of God's amazing grace. He was living in a pagan country where they worshiped the, the sun and they were idolaters, deluxe. And yet God moves in and by his grace taps a man on the shoulder named Abram and says, come on, follow me. I want you out of here and I'm gonna lead you to a land I will show you. That's the beginning of God's plan working out. Grace means unmerited favor. It means God did something for you you didn't deserve. How many of you can say, I didn't deserve my salvation? And doesn't God do things all the time, every day, that you didn't even ask for because his grace is always being poured out? Abraham didn't do anything to earn or merit God's calling him. Yet God poured out his affection on him, and God chose to pour out his grace on Abraham. And we see that over and over again throughout his life. He was selected by grace, just like you and me. By grace, we were saved through faith. That not of ourselves lest any man should boast. But it was a gift, a pure gift from God. 
Okay? Now, the thing about our salvation we can boast about. Abraham was the same way. Abraham's son Isaac and then his grandson Jacob experienced the same grace. And then Abraham's great-grandson Joseph experienced the very same selection, calling out, and grace. All throughout Genesis, God's gracious election of Abraham's family is very evident. In the same way, God chose to show his grace and affection to you and to me. Now, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. You didn't find the Lord, neither did I. He found you and me. See, he, he came to Abraham and said, come out of here. Abraham heard his voice. Don't know how God spoke, but he followed him. Pure grace called him out of a pagan country. God came to you and me in the midst of our deep, dark, tragic sin, tapped us on the shoulder and said, I died for you. Come out. Come out of Ur of the Chaldees. Come out of the world. And we were called out that we might be called in. Okay? We didn't merit it. Not one of us deserved it, but God did it. But God in his grace chose to pour out his love and mercy on us, and for that, he is worthy of all our praise. Can we just take a second? And let's just lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you that the grace of God came to me. Thank you that the grace came to me. Called me out so that I could be called in to the kingdom of God. Now, can you say with me, I love you, Lord. Isn't God good? Give him a hand of praise tonight. God is good. <clears throat> now, in the book of Genesis, there's a, a few subplots like there would be in a novel. Let me just show you a couple of them. We also see some, some minor subplots unfolding. As mentioned previously, in Genesis 3.15, we're already looking toward the coming of Christ. In Genesis 3, we're already looking to the coming of Christ. The sacrifice passage about Abraham and his son Isaac in Genesis 22, is a complete picture of who Jesus is and how he would be sacrificed for you and me. Then when you look at Genesis 35, 11, you see the promise given to Jacob that kings would come from his lineage. Look what it says in verse 11. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation even many nations. Now read the last with me. Kings will be among your descendants. Well, what king did God have in mind? Well, in Genesis 49, at the end of the book, we find an old and dying Jacob blessing all of his sons. And he says something different to every one of them. But when he comes to Judah, here's what he says. Quote, the scepter, which means rulership, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, Messiah, to whom it belongs, shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Said so Judah, Messiah's coming from you. <clears throat> In the New Testament, what is Jesus known as? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. And when he comes back, he's not coming as a lamb. He's coming out as a lion. Now, Jacob is prophesying that out of the lineage of Judah, the Messiah would come, who would literally rule all the nations. Folks, one day, every nation on earth is going to be under the rulership of Messiah Jesus, who will be ruling out of Jerusalem. Mark it down. That's what it says. Now, another subplot in Genesis, just 
for the heck of it, let's look at one, is the concept of covenant. This is really important. Can you say with me covenant? How many of you are married in here? Would you raise your hands if you're married? You know what you did when you got married? You cut a covenant. But now, what about God cutting a covenant with us? A covenant means a contractual agreement. A Bible covenant is God's description of how his people will relate to him, walk with him, and enjoy his blessing. That's why we need the Bible. How are we ever going to know what pleases the Lord unless we read the Bible? There are two types of Bible covenants. Here there are conditional and unconditional. Now a conditional covenant is an agreement that is binding on both parties. Both have to live up to the agreement. Both parties agree to certain conditions. That's a conditional covenant. And if either party fails to meet their responsibilities, the covenant is broken. It's done. And neither party has to fulfill the expectations of the covenant if one of the two breaks it. That's a conditional covenant. But then there is an unconditional or a unilateral covenant And that's an agreement between two parties, but only one of them has to do something. Nothing is required of the other party. Now, guess what? The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. What's God saying? I'm going to do it whether or not the Jews fulfill their part or human beings at all fulfill their part. I'm going to bring this covenant to pass. He made promises to Abraham that required nothing of Abraham. Now, in the Genesis, amazingly, three of the seven covenants in the Bible are there. The Edenic covenant, where God promises a redeemer. The Noahic covenant, where God promises to never destroy the earth with water again. And the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to give you Redemption. It's all going to come through the Jew, Abraham. That's why it's so crazy to not bless God's chosen people. That's crazy because the covenant was made to them. Okay? Now, one of the real reasons that I believe the Bible is the Word of God is because of the imperfect characters that are in it. If I was writing a book and I was going to call it a holy book and try to convince people all over the world that it was a holy book, I would, I would lie about the characters. I would make them all look heroic and perfect. But the Bible doesn't do that. There's major flaws in the main characters throughout the book of Genesis. The father of our faith twice lied about his wife, almost got her killed or assaulted. She's my sister. She's my sister. That was the father of our faith. What do you think Sarah thought about that? Sarah was carried away into a king's castle, and I believe she turned Abraham over to God. So all through the Bible, and Genesis in particular, the characters have flaws. Jacob the trickster. I mean, you just, you can go through just all, all the, the main characters. This is where we learn very early on in the Old Testament. These are stories of real people dealt with by a real God. And I'm not saying they weren't, there weren't some good qualities in them. There were some incredible qualities as their faith grew. But One of the great evidences of the Bible's veracity is its truthfulness about its main characters. Tells the truth. And I also think one of the reasons for the truthfulness about its main characters' flaws 
is that it shows us the insufficiency of man and the sufficiency of God and why we needed a Savior. Okay? His purpose and his promises are going to continue despite their flaws because it's an unconditional covenant. Messiah was going to come no matter what people did. He was going to die for our sins no matter what people did. He was going to rise from the dead no matter what people did. And he's coming back no matter what people do. It's unconditional. I am so glad to know the things that pertain to Jesus don't depend on me. Amen? How many of you can say, honestly, I would probably fail somewhere in the covenant and we'd all be in trouble? Isn't it good to know that God will accomplish his purpose even through our weaknesses? Amen? Now let's look at Exodus, and we're headed towards the close. Exodus literally means departure. And the book of Exodus tells of Israel's deliverance from slavery. Now the picture that unfolds in the first half of the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 19, is of an all-powerful and mighty God who saves. That's who we see in Exodus. In Genesis, the chosen nation of God's people are birthed. But in Exodus, we find them in slavery. And just as God chose Abraham by grace, he reaches down and he uh, chooses Moses by grace to be the leader of God's people out of bondage. And of course, he was a failure in summary. He killed a man. He was a fugitive from justice for 40 years in a foreign country. God had to lead him back after showing him himself in a burning bush. Moses was imperfect but he was called, and God used him. And in this respect, he's a type of Christ. And when you look at the story, Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. And their slavery is a picture of slavery to sin. The New Testament also tells us that the Red Sea they crossed is a type of the waters of baptism. By God's miraculous power, they departed from slavery in Egypt and they journeyed to Sinai, Mount Sinai. Now, the second half of Exodus, starting in chapter 20, God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And he also cuts the fourth covenant with man, the Mosaic Covenant. So we have Abraham in covenant with God. Then we have Noah in covenant with God. Then we have Adam in covenant with God. And now that covenant is transferred over to Moses and the people of God after they are delivered. God gave them the Mosaic covenant. So Exodus is the story of how God's people came out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea, and journeyed to Sinai where God was. And what is our story? We were in our own Egypt. God sent a deliverer. His name was Jesus, not Moses. We were pulled out of bondage to Pharaoh, the devil. We were baptized in water and crossed over the sea. And now, guess what? We are awaiting the perfect promised land. And it will come. Now, there are two key chapters in Exodus worth looking at real quickly. Exodus 12 is where the sacrifice of the Passover lamb is observed which made their deliverance from slavery possible. You remember that story. And what was God showing from the Passover lamb? He said, he said, you slay a lamb and you put his blood over the doorpost of your home. You be sure his blood is on your house. Because when the death angel passes over, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. And what does God say to you and me now? 
you be sure you have the blood of the real ultimate lamb over the doorpost of your heart. And when the death angel crosses over, he will pass over you and you will not be judged by death. For even though you die, yet shall you live, said Jesus. Okay? You know, this, this, this week I performed a very difficult funeral. And it was uh, of a lady that we had known for years. Long story short, on Thanksgiving Day, her and her family were going to a Thanksgiving meal, and they were hit broadsided by a vehicle going 65 miles an hour. And she was taken. She was holding, well, there was an 11-month-old baby in the truck. Get this. When the police get there, the husband is badly hurt, He's walking around in a daze. They have to use the jaws of life to even just remove her from the truck. And they heard something. And they looked, and they looked under the truck, and there was this baby under the truck with nothing more than the equivalent of two fingernail scratches. He had been thrown from the truck, rolled over onto by the truck, but totally unscathed. Now, I did this funeral And here's what I said. We sorrow. But listen to me carefully, church. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Paul said we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Why? Because of what we're looking at. We have been delivered from death to life, from lost to found. We are sealed by the blood, sealed by the Holy Spirit of redemption. And though we die, yet we shall live. That's what Jesus said. So while the funeral was difficult, believe me, it's not like some I've done where there was no belief in Christ. There was no hope of an eternal life, nothing beyond the grave. This is all there is. And it is tragic and it's heartbreaking. And that sorrow works death. But the sorrow that comes from God is not the kind that brings death. But there is life beyond the grave. Thank God we have victory. Grave, where's your victory? And death, where's your stinger? Amen? Passover, then Exodus 20 is the other because it's the giving of the law. Very important to read that chapter. These are the two pivotal chapters in Exodus. And there's also some key places. I'm going to close with this. The people of Israel journey from Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where God establishes his covenant with Moses. Now, Mount Sinai is a very important place in the book of Exodus. It's also known as Mount Horeb, and it's known as the Mountain of God. Well, I love that. The mountain of God. It was here where Moses encountered the burning bush and the voice spoke out and said, Moses, take your sandals off because the place where you stand is holy ground. And there he had his meeting with God who said, I've called you to go to Egypt and deliver my people. I don't care that you can't talk good. Quit looking at your own insufficiencies. I will be your sufficiency. You are going to do it. And it was that same mountain where he received the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant. Mount Sinai is described in Hebrews as a very sacred and somber place. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews describes it. 
You have not come, he's telling believers in Jesus Christ, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind. Good grief. Look at what he said was on that mountain. Flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind. Not a place where I want to go on vacation. But that's what they saw at Mount Sinai. Verse 19, for the people heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible, they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. What was his command? If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. This mountain is sacred. Only Moses can come up. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight of that mountain, he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, says the writer, you, believers in Jesus Christ, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. Hallelujah. I'll vacate there. Amen? What a difference. And here's the summary. If we don't understand Exodus, we will never understand the New Testament. Why would that be? When Jesus comes on the scene at John's baptism in the opening of the New Testament, John's gospel, at the River Jordan, and John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you don't know Exodus, that makes no sense whatsoever. What are you calling him a lamb for? What do you mean the Lamb of God? But you know Exodus and the Passover story? You immediately connect the dots to what John is saying. He said, you remember that Passover feast when the blood of the Lamb saved Israel? There's the final Lamb whose blood is going to cover the sins of the world. So we connect those dots. Jesus, the greatest religious teacher of the world, and they're calling him a lamb. Well, now we know why. Now next time we're going to zip through the rest of the Pentateuch, and it's good stuff. I'm going to make Leviticus and Deuteronomy wonderfully interesting to you. Okay? Let's stand up together, can we? <clears throat> Amen. Well, how many of you are thankful you made it through all kinds of trial tonight? Isn't God good? Let's lift our hands to him and just thank him. Lord, we thank you for the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Lord, that in Exodus you were paving the way, giving us a picture, types and shadows of what was to come. Thank you for Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a Redeemer who would deal a death blow to man's arch enemy, the devil. Thank you for the call of Abram and for selecting out of his descendants the tribe of Judah to bring forth the Lamb of God. Thank you that as your grace called out Abraham from a dark, deceived world, into a promised land. You've called us out of a dark and deceived world into the kingdom of God. We praise you for it, Father. Thank you for your complete, unified book, the Bible. Lord, give us a deep craving for it. Awaken in us a hunger for that divine manna. Feed us with it daily, Lord. 
praise you for your goodness and your grace. And we stand here in the light of the cleansing of the blood and in the light of your spirit and the smile of your son because of what he did for us. Thank you, Lord.